Historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. My name is Itai Tenenbaum. I am both an Israeli and an American. Born in Tel Aviv, moved to the United States at the age of 11, and lived in the Washington, D.C. area. At 18, I returned to Israel, served in the Israeli Defense Forces, mainly as a tank commander. I participated in the first Lebanon war in the 1980s and for many years inside Gaza in my month-a-year reserve duty. I run boutique tours to Israel and, of course, this podcast, Inside Israel. I'm going to start this episode with two blunt comments. The first is that America is the only real ally to Israel at this time, and really since the 1960s. Sure, There was an air train of heads of state, foreign ministers, and other diplomats that came to Israel to show their support as a result of October 7th. The British Prime Minister, the French President, the German Chancellor, and other diplomats landed in Israel shortly after the October 7th attack. They even cried with us. But when push comes to shove, after two months of fighting, these nations are starting to use expressions like not proportional, humanitarian crisis, immediate ceasefire. Immediate ceasefire is another way of saying that Hamas stays in power. When the UN General Secretary called for an immediate meeting uh, in his power is to actually convene the Security Council if there's a chance of a world war. So when he convened the United Nations Security Council, hoping to get a full vote on an immediate ceasefire which would be coercive towards Israel, The French supported it. The British only abstained. It was actually America that shot it down. Interestingly enough, he didn't think of maybe calling that kind of Security Council meeting when the Russia-Ukraine war started or went on for over a year, only when Israel has to fight in Gaza. And so, as I said, America, having veto power in the Security Council, blocked the resolution, knocked it out. America is Israel's only real ally. My second blunt comment is that Israel bases its entire foreign policy on what America thinks, what America will say, and how America will act. Basically, Israel's foreign ministry coined the phrase, all that matters is America. Those critical of this approach need to understand that all other democratic countries favor the Arab world, obviously for political interests. They very often support ridiculous UN motions against Israel. They are not trustworthy. So, America is Israel's only real ally, and Israel knows it. Having said that, the last eight years or so have been tough. Do you remember when Prime Minister Netanyahu spoke in front of the Congress in 2015, challenging the Obama-Iran deal and asking Congress to shoot it down? And all this while Obama, his administration, and the entire Democratic Party listened on. The damage was almost irreversible since it caused the status of Israel to change from being nonpartisan to aligning with only one party, the Republican Party. The rift with the Democratic Party continued with this current Israeli government due to their attempt to reform Israel's judicial system, or as many in Israel say, the attempted takeover of the judicial system by the Israeli government. Biden, showing his objection, gave Netanyahu the cold shoulder. He didn't even invite him to the White House, which is the usual ritual. And he was blunt about it. When asked by reporters if he was going to invite Netanyahu to the White House, Biden simply said, no. October 7th changed all of that. For now. 
Okay, so I've said this a couple times and I'll say it again. America is Israel's only real ally and Israel cares only what America will say and do. And at this point, I'd like to give some context. I know, not a great word nowadays, context. But it's really needed here. So much to say, but I'd actually like to point out a few highlights in the U.S.-Israel relationship. When did Israel and America become allies? For the first 19 years of Israel's existence, America had yet to make a real decision if they will ally with Israel or with the majority of the Arab world. America under Truman, Eisenhower, and Lyndon Johnson was definitely supportive of Israel, but at the same time wanted a strong relationship with the Arab countries. It made sense, the best of both worlds. But in those 19 years, Israel and the Arab world have already fought three wars. The 1948 War of Independence, and that was when Israel came about or was established. 1956, the Sinai Campaign. And then in 1967, the Six-Day War. Add to that heavy Soviet involvement in the conflict. That doesn't leave much room for the U.S. to be a bystander. You may be surprised to hear that the U.S. was somewhat pushed into the Israeli corner. That was when the Arab countries chose the Soviet Union as their main ally. Don't be mistaken. The U.S. was committed to the existence of Israel from the outset, especially on an ideological basis, Israel being a thriving democracy. But politics and national interest usually take precedent. When Egypt, Syria, and other major Arab countries chose the Soviets, America chose Israel. I'll give you one example to understand the American position. In May of 1967, the Middle East was gearing up for war. Constant border skirmishes. Terrorism coming into Israel from the then-Egyptian-controlled Gaza, as well as terrorism coming to Israel from the then-Jordanian-controlled West Bank. Non-stop bombardments from the Syrian-controlled Golan Heights. All this made war imminent. Then, Egypt tried to put the last nail in the coffin when they sealed the Straits of Tehran in the Red Sea, shutting down Israeli-bound shipping. For Israel, this was existential. And still, Israel attempted to defuse the situation by basically asking America for help. The infamous Israeli Minister of Foreign Affairs named Abba Evan flew to the United States and met with LBJ, Lyndon Johnson that is. He only had one request, Abba Evan, send an American carrier to the Red Sea and open up the straits. This will achieve two important goals. One, Egypt, which was the strongest Arab country, will need to back off. And two, the world will see that America and Israel are allies. Well, Lyndon Johnson said no. And you know what? Understandably, he had his hands full in Vietnam and did not want the situation to escalate into a world conflict that will involve the Soviets. If he, LBJ, sent a warship, would that force the Soviets to send two? So he said no to the Israeli request, and that left Israel all on its own. When the situation deteriorated even more, and Israel faced a growing number of Arab armies at our borders, not just Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon, but also the Iraqi army that was given passage via Jordan and troops from as far as Morocco reached Israel. Israel needed to act. America still wasn't getting involved, but gave Israel the green light to conduct a preemptive strike. The Israeli Air Force took off, by the way, with French mirages. Within hours, the Arab Air Force was obliterated. Six days later, the war was over with a glorious Israeli victory. It was only then that America and Israel tied the knot. 
the alliance was tightened even more six years later and as a result of the Yom Kippur War. That was when Israel was surprised attacked on two fronts by the Egyptians and the Syrians. What we Israelis coined as getting caught with our pants down, surprised, outnumbered, and outgunned on our knees, we still fought hard and stubborn. But we needed rearmaments. We needed spare parts, ammunition, weapons, etc. Nixon, the American president, came to our aid and ordered an air train to Israel with all the needed armaments. This was of such importance that the then Prime Minister Golda Meir referred for the rest of her life to Richard Nixon as my president. She said, and I quote, For generations to come, all will be told of the miracle of the immense planes from the United States bringing in the material that meant life to our people. Of course, Nixon was worried about a Soviet victory, but regardless, he saved us. Now, this wasn't a one-way street. The alliance had mutual impact. Israel helped America in many ways. One specific example took place in 1982. In June of 1982, the largest aerial battle since World War II took place between American-made jet fighters flown by Israeli pilots and Soviet-made jet fighters flown by Syrian pilots. Each side had about 100 planes in the sky at the same time. The air battle, known as a dogfight, lasted about two hours and involved innovative tactics and technology. By the end of the day, the Israeli Air Force had destroyed 29 of the 30 ground-to-air Soviet-made SAM batteries deployed in the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon, and around 87 of the 100 Soviet-made jet fighters were shot down. None of the American-made planes flown by the Israeli pilots went down. Zero. It was a decisive victory of American technology over Soviet technology. And, as many historians and researchers assess, that was the battle which the Soviet Union fully grasped that they lost the arms race against America. Five years later, the Soviet Union fell apart. Okay, the last part of the context has to do with American presidents attempting to solve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Starting with Jimmy Carter in the 1970s, then Ronald Reagan, George Bush, Bill Clinton, George Bush the son, Obama, Trump, and even Biden. They all took their shot, and they all failed. That's what happens when the sides aren't ripe. And not to sound subjective, but it was the Palestinian side that always said no to multiple offers, and never even offered a counteroffer, what they would think maybe would be a resolution, other than, of course, Israel's disappearance. All this context was just the tip of the iceberg. Soon, I'll be offering courses for people to be educated in a more substantial and meaningful way. And so, I now come to the current relationship with America vis-a-vis the war in Hamas. And to better grasp this complexity, I've invited Dr. Kobe Barda, who is an expert on U.S.-Israel relations. So, I welcome Dr. Kobe Barda who received his PhD in American political history and international affairs. He is a researcher of American politics, specializing in research on grassroots lobby groups and their influence on Israel-U.S. relations. Dr. Barda is a fellow of the Heikens Chair in Geostrategy and a senior researcher at the Haifa Laboratory for Religious Studies 
at the University of Haifa in Israel. He is the host and owner of the podcast, America Baby. Welcome, Dr. Barda. Hi, great to be here. So thank you. And I want to start off right away with a pretty blunt question. It seems like America thus far has really been the only major world power that stands with Israel. It vetoed the Security Council demand for an immediate ceasefire and again vetoed it also at the, well, didn't veto it, but it voted against in the UN General Assembly. How does America see its role in the current Gaza war and what are the American interests? So uh, I think that the best way to look at the lens is through the leadership of President Biden, because it's playing a very important role in that. President Biden has three circles in which he operates within the Israeli conflict in Gaza. The first inner circle is what I called the personal circle. He said more than once, most recently was yesterday, uh, on the uh, lighting of the candles of the Hanukkah ceremony, that he is a Zionist. And I think in that aspect, his heart is in the right place. The second circle is the national circle. President Biden has put on Congress the bill that now is about $114 billion. And he's looking in a way that uh, the Washington, D.C., uh, establishment working, is trying to deliver pork for both parties that will be able to enable this big package. And uh, he do that by targeting the Republican Party with in a large amount of money for building the wall, which is one of the most important things for the GOP on one hand. And on the other hand, passing the Ukraine aid in his viewpoint to uh, glue those two circles of the that very polarized Congress is the aid to Israel. So he looks at Israel as a bridge between the GOP and the Dems. And this is something that belongs to his long understanding of politics in Washington, D.C. We have to remember this guy is from the 70s. And thirdly, and that might be the most important aspect, that is the fear of a third world in the case of three different hot spots in the world. So the first one we already know almost two years now is the invasion of Russia to Ukraine. The second is the Middle East. That's why on the first day he went out and in this very uh, famous piece of don't uh, and throwing all the weapons that he has in his under his hands into the Middle East to send or to signal the Iranian and third is Asia, where we see the Chinese hassling Philippine vassals, where we see North Korea orchestrating maybe what will be the same strategy of uh, uh, launching a campaign against South Korea, what might be in Taiwan. So we have to understand, if those all three hotspots gather into one war, this is the definition of a world war. And that is why he's putting so much effort into the Israeli cause that it won't eventually flame the next world war. Okay, that's that's interesting. Very interesting, as a matter of fact, in terms of the uh, global interests of America. And let's zoom in a little more. Zoom in and ask, you know, the Israeli media basically says that although Biden is extremely supportive, we have a time uh, limit. In other words, he's going to limit us as a matter of fact, I, I heard that we hear all over the Israeli media that, you know, by the beginning of January, middle of January, this should all be done. How do you see this playing out? 
So I think basically most of the time we need to separate between direct quotes or Twitter accounts and briefing of senior unknown figures. What I tend to do is try to look at what people actually says. You do see that President Biden has been standing next to Israel more than 60 days now. Yes, there is pressure for him to uh, finalize the war, calling for a ceasefire. But we see his resilience. But I do believe that it is a matter of weeks that we will eventually, uh, with the heavy cost, will uh, eliminate the most of the uh, infrastructure of the Hamas in Gaza. So now I want to take a little bit of a turn and ask you as an Israeli, as an expert on Israel-America relations, how do the Israelis, how do we the Israelis view the relationship between the two countries? I do believe that the whole uh, structure of Israel and the United States fighting shoulder to shoulder in the battlefield and in the diplomatic battlefield has been uh, extremely important. I think what we see here, it is reconnecting uh, between those two communities. And I think that it is both parties needing that. And I'll try to explain why. What I've been doing for the last 50 or 60 days is trying every now and then to find some time, send a WhatsApp, try to call to one of my Jewish friends and tell them that I'm trying to support them as much as I can, because I can understand how difficult time is it to be a Jew in America, the persecution of Jewish students everywhere. Uh, people need to hide in the bathroom, need to hide in the library, need to be something of that nature. And Jews that live safely in America since the first wave of coming to the shore of the new Amsterdam, was facing reality that they never knew. And I've been encouraging my Israeli friends at the podcast that I have, the America Baby podcast, was please approach any of your friends, any of your Jewish friends in America, and try to hug them, tell them how much you care about them, because it is a very essential bond at the time, because we as a family need to stand for each other in difficult time. And there is, you know, there is not even need to, to talk about what the American jury did for us, uh, because you see it all over the place. The numbers are, are exceeding $1 billion that was sent in the last uh, 90 days to Israel. Some of the things are phenomenal. You get to see the amount of support you get from uh, Jews in America. Congresswoman Stefanik, that now I don't think that there is any one Israeli or American who doesn't know who that congressman is, that led last week uh, the session in Congress, the hearing against the three uh, universities, uh, President, the Ivy League presidents, just said yesterday uh, when she was on the floor talking about uh, condemning the behavior, that there was more than one billion views in that hearing, which made it the most viewed Congress investigation in the history. Okay, I have one final question. Most of the um, people listening to this podcast are Americans, and most of them are actually Jewish Americans, although it's heard all over the world. Um, and I've been asked by friends and colleagues and others, what can we do to help? And we know that there's donation. What about on a personal level? What do you, what kind of message can you give them? So I would go to the very basic fundamentalistic 
help that any American can do in order to help Israelis. Shout to their congressman, reach out to their senator, and try to tell them that something has been happened and we need your help. Now, as somebody who explored that for decades, I can tell you that there is no better uh, democratic way that uh, can influence and impact Israel rather than to text your congressman. And it only takes few moments of your time. Dr. Barda, thank you very much. I appreciate all your insights. Thank you. It's been an honor. Thank you very much. I'd like to end this episode with a few words about the need for American-Israeli relations to continue to thrive, both in the political international arena, but also between the two Jewish communities. U.S.-Israel relations will continue to thrive as long as major issues are not disrupted. For instance, both nations need to prioritize their democratic values and systems. Both countries need to maintain strong checks and balances of government. And I'm specifically speaking mainly about Israel. Both countries need to recognize the value in the ideological bond between us. U.S.-Israel relations will continue to thrive if politicians expressing radical views in both Israel and the United States are marginalized. In Israel, there are politicians, not many, but loud, that belittled the need for a strong U.S.-Israel alliance. Those that were vocal about it are now silent. In the U.S., we've heard voices challenging the strong bond with Israel, wanting to see it dissipate. Hopefully, these voices are also marginalized. And finally, a few words about the bond between the two Jewish communities. We live in an era like no other for, Jew for the Jewish world. For the very first time in history, the Jews possess a strong national homeland with an army that will ensure the never-again idea. At the same time, we have the strongest ever diaspora Jewish community, that is, American Jewry. These two never existed before at the same time. That is a brand new phenomena in Jewish history. Both communities will stay strong as long as we have each other's backs. October 7th has created a reality in which American Jewry understands the relationship with Israel. At the same time, the state of Israel understands the plight of American Jews faced with disgusting anti-Semitism an anti-Semitism that poses a real threat. Israel, therefore, needs to fully comprehend that it is a state of its citizens, but at the same time a national homeland for the Jewish people, all Jews, no matter the diversity. Look, the Jew communities are different and will continue to be different, but Jews in Israel and the United States need to identify the areas that distinguish us and the areas that unite us. The attack by Hamas wasn't just an attack on Israel. It was an attack on the Jewish world. The attacks on Jews in America by the anti-Semites are not just an attack on American Jews. They are a direct attack on the concept of the Jewish homeland. Nothing like a common enemy to make us realize we need to face them by standing strongly together. Thank you for listening. Please share this and other episodes. This episode and all other episodes can be listened to on all podcast media sources, 
such as Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google, and more. It is also possible to listen on InsideIsrael.fm. The Inside Israel podcast needs your support. If willing, please log on to InsideIsrael.fm and click on the Support Us button.